Join Global Genes and the Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for the annual Rare Drug Development Symposium, June 6th and 7th in Philadelphia. The symposium will focus on the drug development process and is designed to connect, educate, and inspire rare disease advocates. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Laura Poland's son was diagnosed with Prader-Willi syndrome, she began to dive into the scientific literature about the rare condition. Poland, a scientist and co-founder of the Kion Foundation, discovered that Pitolisant, a recently approved drug for narcolepsy, might benefit patients with Prader-Willi. Working with her Kion co-founder, Maria Pacone, who developed an online data-gathering platform for patient-reported outcomes, they tracked the effects of the drug in three patients. In a clinical vignette published in the Journal of Pediatric Pharmacology and Therapeutics in April, they reported their findings. We spoke to Pollen about her efforts, the value of patient-reported outcomes, and why the work she's done suggests the need for a more neurologically-based approach to treating Prader-Willi. Lara, thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk about Prader-Willi syndrome, the Cheon Foundation, and your work to repurpose a treatment for narcolepsy that could be a treatment for Prader-Willi. For people not familiar with Prader-Willi syndrome, let's start there. What is it? How does it manifest itself? And, and how does it progress? Hmm. So uh, it's a rare disease, obviously. Um, when the children, it's um, caused by a small, either a small deletion or something called uh, uniparental disomy, which sort of in effect is like a small deletion in chromosome 15. And when the children are born, they um, they just don't move in a sense. They're asleep and they don't move and they can't eat. And in many cases, they um, end up in intensive care. Um, and it, it takes weeks to diagnose them. Um, over time, like months, they may begin to um, develop enough tone and enough wakefulness to eat. But prior to that, they're fed either with a feeding tube, either through the nose or into their stomach. Um, over time, they develop the tone and the movement to eat. And um, over time, they are a- most of them are able to walk and move around. Um, but the sort of the low muscle tone and the sleepiness persists through childhood. And... Then at a certain point it switches and they, and their body composition is always off where they have a higher percent body fat. And growth hormone is the standard of care here in the United States and that helps them grow and um, normalizes their body composition, increases their uh, muscle and decreases the fat. 
over time, they get stronger and um, some um, uh, switch flips and they become hungrier. And not only do they become hungrier, but they also, um, the metabolism seems to be off and they, and they um, gain weight very quickly. And it's this, this thing that not all children experience, but it's very common, um, is why our Prader-Willi syndrome, our PWS, sort of has the brand of obesity and hyperphagia, constantly eating. And it's, um, you know, like many of the rare diseases, it's, it's debilitating and painful. How is it treated today, and, and what's the growth prognosis? Hormone. It's primarily growth hormone. Um, that's the treatment. And then after that, you're treating the physicians treat the different symptoms. So it's largely considered a metabolic disease because the focus is on hunger and on on obesity. And the growth hormones, since they're given growth hormones, since before growth hormone, um, prior to the use of growth hormone, the children also had short stature. Now that they're on growth hormone, that's not really an issue. And I believe because of the obesity, because of the risk for diabetes, because of the use of growth hormone, the kids are primarily managed by endocrinologists. Well, you became involved in Prader-Willi when your son was diagnosed with the condition. What happened? Yeah, so I'm actually an immunologist, and I uh, have my Ph.D. from a medical school, Northwestern, here in Chicago. And I had actually written about growth. I'm a medical writer. I'd written about growth hormone. I'd written about PWS. I knew a little bit about it. And then my third child was born about 15 years ago with PWS. And we got the diagnosis two and a half weeks after his birth. Um, he was profoundly affected. He went into intensive care within the first 24 hours. Um, and that's when I started focusing a lot of my energy on PWS. In 2016, you co-founded the Chion Foundation. You're president of the foundation. What is it and what does it do? How does it differ from other Prader-Willi organizations? So there are two large Prader-Willi organizations um, that do many great things. There's uh, PWSA USA and the Foundation for Prader-Willi Research, FPWR. And then there's also an international Prader-Willi um, organization. We're very small. So we're nowhere near at that level, and we're very focused. Um, we're not. Um, we're more of a patient advocacy group. While we believe in research, and we've published, um, even in our short time, we've already had oh, one science, one one abstract at the SPWR scientific meeting. We have an abstract coming up at the American Academy of Neurology meeting next month. We have an uh, ad, a poster that we'll be presenting. Two posters we'll be presenting at the sleep meeting in San Antonio this summer, and then we have a paper that just came out in JP, JPPT. So we believe in science. We do science, but we think we, we believe at our heart that science is a tool, and we advocate for patients. We use science to achieve goals for patients, not just science because we believe in research. So we have identified um, a drug, patolacin, that's approved for use in Europe for the treatment of narcolepsy, which is another rare disease. And we have found that it is extraordinarily successful in the small group of kids that we've tried it in. And um, we think that gets back to really the presenting symptom of our kids, which is this profound sleepiness 
and low tone. And um, we think that that is actually the fundamental problem of PWS. And so we're trying to, because we're small and because we, um, uh, we're targeted and we're um, very nimble, we're trying to just, with a, a laser focus, sort of just shift the conversation so that neurologists are included in the conversation for PWS. Because up until now, they largely have not been. It's been largely a uh, metabolic or endocrinological conversation. As you mentioned, you're a scientist by training. You have a, a doctorate in, in immunology and microbiology. You delve into the scientific literature about Prader-Willi. What did you discover? So when I jumped in um, 15 years ago, the situation was pretty much hopeless. And uh, so I didn't expect to find any answers in the literature. Um, what I decided that I would do is I would, um, and I didn't think I would necessarily, I didn't think I was going to find any answers in the conclusions um, that any of the researchers had made to date or at that time. Instead, I focused on the questions that they were asking and the answers that they were getting. I figured any answer that I came up with, any hypothesis I came up with, had to be consistent with the data, but didn't have to be consistent with other people's conclusions about the data, if that makes sense. Um, I was disappointed when I realized, <laughs> I mean, I think we all have this experience, when, you, when I realized that my son had a rare disease and the limitations inherent in rare disease, that sample sizes were going to be small, that there weren't going, the projects were going to be small, that um, you weren't going to be, it's not like diabetes or multiple sclerosis where you were going to have huge teams of people tackling the problem from multiple different angles. Instead, you would have a few individuals looking at the problem from their area of expertise. So I had to get used to that at first. So I started there. And then I, um, I try, I, I try to take the, pull the threads, the threads of the data, not the conclusion, and see where they took me. And a lot of them, to me, looked like the whole, entire system of a child with PWS was off, that it was not just an obesity phenomena, but that there was, there was like the system, the, the, the system, the homeostasis, the system of homeostasis in the body was off. And um, while my, PH, uh, my PhD is in immunology, my thesis work was in the intersection between the immune system and the nervous system. So I was used to thinking about problems from that perspective, how different systems interact. And everything kept going back to um, the nervous system for me as I was as I was doing my research. What is um, pertussis? So uh, as I was doing my research, I saw that there. I found that there is a histamine. There now it's been discovered that there are histamine three receptors in the in the brain. So histamine. Most people think of histamine um, as an immune molecule, and it's the allergic response. So the when histamine binds to the histamine 1 receptor, that's the standard um, allergic response, and that's what Benadryl works on the histamine 1 receptor. When histamine binds to the histamine 2 receptor, which primarily is in the gut, you can get sort of uh, uh, reflux, and um, that, that's 
and and drugs like Zantac that bind to the histamine 2 receptor, they work on that. Then there's the histamine 3 receptor, which was discovered, you know, honestly, maybe about 15 years ago, around the time my son was born. I actually need to fact check that. But um, it was discovered by um, by a brilliant resource, um, resource, uh, researcher, Professor Schwartz, in France. And um, it's a fascinating molecule, uh, receptor in the brain, that regulates sleep-wake states and hunger and alertness and um, uh, anxiety, and REM sleep dreams, and um, it's just fascinating. And so as Professor Schwartz was characterizing the histamine 3 receptor, he identified a molecule, patolescence, and he also found that patolescence promoted wakefulness in mice who were uh, narcoleptic. And so, and obviously he's a better person to tell this story, but... Um, um, he then uh, took the drug to market for narcolepsy. And I discovered it in the medical literature. And when I looked at all the different things that the histamine 3 receptor did and all the different problems in PWS, I was shocked at how well the two things lined up. It, the overlay was unbelievable. And it accounted for, it could, I could use it to account for all the different pieces of data that couldn't really be explained by this whole idea of PWS being primarily about obesity. Um, and when, to the best of my knowledge, my son was the first um, child, first individual with PWS to try patolescent. And we get patolescent, FDA has given us permission for personal importation of patolescent from Europe. And his response to patolescent was phenomenal. I expected it to be good, but it was way beyond what I expected. And because of his extraordinary response, we formed Chian Foundation, and we started uh, and we asked around if there were any other families who wanted to try patolescent, and it's expensive. We're paying out of pocket. And if they would, would they document their experience? Good or bad, would they document their experience? And it's the culmination of that that you see in the paper that we published last week. It's our patient experience with patolescent. Prada really has traditionally been thought of and as an endocrine disorder. It's been treated by endocrinologists. The link you've zeroed in on suggests a, a neurological link that's often overlooked. Uh, you know, I'd I note patients with Prader-Willi often exhibit daytime sleepiness like people with narcolepsy, but your work suggests that a, a benefit from this drug could provide one that extends beyond that. Can, can you explain? Yes, well beyond. It's, it, again, so we only have about 10 patients now who are on, with PWS who are on Vitolacin, and they range in age from 2 to 18. And they range from severely impacted or where the, the disease is quite burdensome on them to those who are more mildly affected. So it's very difficult to make any strong conclusions from our small group. So with all of those caveats, right, um, it seems that when you normalize the sleep-wake states of our kids, there's a lot of things that follow from that. They um, are able to think more clearly. They are able, it, the, their learning disabilities seem to start falling away. Their cognition improves. 
their language abilities start improving dramatically. Um, they're doing better in school. Their behavior starts improving dramatically. Their anxiety decreases, and their relationship to food normalizes. So um, we're seeing a lot of incredible things. Now, if you take a child like mine who didn't go on the drug until he was closer to 11 or 12, um, and he will be 15 soon, I mean, he's... Um, He's got a lot of holes. We've got a lot of filling in to do. But um, he has come a tremendously long way. I mean, he's now a freshman at a very large high school, and he's in college prep, prep classes, and um, he just made the honor roll, which I'm very proud of him. So he works very hard. But it's other children, you know, while I'm, you know, bragging on my kid, other kids in our small group are seeing um, similar gains. And it's um, very exciting for us, and we want to engage the the neurology community in thinking about PWS because we think that if we can engage them looking at the problem with their expertise, that they'll be able to help our community a great deal. So you alluded to a paper that you were the lead author on, and it was a clinical vignette in the Journal of Pediatric Pharmacology and Therapeutics. This involved a series of Prader-Willi cases where families self-reported their experiences with pitilocent. Can can you explain what was done and, and particularly about the software that was created for this? Oh yeah, you mean actually you should talk to Maria Perconi. Perconi, she's brilliant. So she's also a mom of a child with PWS, and I am. So incredibly fortunate to have found her, and she and I worked together to co-found Xi'an Foundation. And uh, she knows the technology. I know the science. She knows the technology, and I won't be able to do it justice. But briefly, she came into this the PWS world with um, uh, experience in uh, she she's software creating software for clinical trials and for collecting data, and then analyzing and packaging the data to get it through the drug approval process for FDA. So she brought that sort of skill set to the table. And based upon our our need, the need of the PWS community, and she works with many other rare disease communities, um, she created software so that parents could, in effect, crowdsource their data, um, describe their experience with, um, first she did it with the diet, and now we're doing it with this specific drug. And uh, what it allows... It's so good for so many different ways, but one is it allows us to analyze this data and get it out. So in many cases, parents um, sign up for clinical trials or sign up for, they go into large databases and they enter their data, and they might not ever see anything come of it for years and years and years. Well, if you think about it, two years ago, our families, maybe it's like two and a half now, our families started entering data, and they've been doing it weekly, and we now have a paper out. We have um, we have an abstract of the neurology coming up. We have an abstract of poster in sleep coming up. So we're able to to push the data out rapidly, and if you talk, talk to most parents of kids with rare diseases, they feel a sense of urgency. This idea that... Um, Oh, a clinical trial, give it four years, and then we'll see if that works. And then most of us don't, um, that just isn't cool for us. We want to believe that we can make a difference within the, within years so that we 
are not just doing it altruistically for the community, but we want to see our children do better because of our efforts. And um, Maria has created a tool to make that happen. I'm, she's, she's a very impressive lady. Where do you go from here? What will it take to confirm that Prada Willie patients benefit from Patolacent and get regulators and, and physicians to acknowledge that? It's a really good question and one we think about a fair amount. So, um, Harmony, the pharmaceutical company, has said that they will do a clinical trial in our patient population and I think that's fabulous. Um, that's, um, that's a, that's a huge, um, that's, that's a huge gain for our community because I think that the drug is going to be very beneficial. Uh, at, at the same time, I mean, they're not, they're not consulting with me about the clinical trial and you, you may have, um, caught on to my sense of urgency. I'm sure whatever they're planning is not going to be fast enough for me because, um, most people aren't fast enough for me. Um, and so, I think a lot of it, the, the drug will be available in the United States. Well, not will be. We're, I think there's, it has breakthrough drug status for narcolepsy and fast track status. And I am hopeful that FDA will approve it at the end of this year. And so, um, if it is approved, I think a lot of it's going to be about getting neurologists to start thinking about whether the kid that shows up in front of them, the kid with PWS who shows up in front of them, is this drug warranted? I kind of, um, you know, n- no drug is 100% effective and no drug is free. I mean, all drugs have side effects. But I think that, that it, I could get most people in a room to agree with the fact that patolacin is likely going to improve wakefulness in children with PWS. Um, now, it's all the other things that I've said that, you know, is it going to improve cognition? Is it going to improve behavior? Is it going to improve speech and language? Is it going to normalize relationship with food? Those things are a little bit more controversial, but I think we all, most people are going to agree it's going to improve wakefulness. So it's sort of about when the kid and the mom and the dad, when they show up, if you're a neurologist and they show up in your office and you have the ability to prescribe patolacent, um, are you going to prescribe it on the off to a sleepy child on the off chance that it can do all these other things? Or are you going to wait for three years while the child falls three years farther behind? while we wait to see if there's some clinical trial data that shows that this stuff works in the way that our paper shows it works. Um, my hope is that neurologists will read about the drug, look at the child in front of them, and consider prescribing patolacin if they think patolacin's right for the kid. There's been a lot of talk about the importance of the patient experience and patient experience data to advance the treatment of rare diseases. What do you think your experience says about all that? It's, my experience would say that there's, it's a lot of lip service at this point, and there's um, not a lot of action. And so this is my my crazy idea, but um, I might as well say it here, and uh, you can cut it off if you so choose. But um, I would actually love to see... Um, FDA and Harmony, and perhaps they've already done this, I have no idea, but FDA and Harmony sitting down and saying, um, is there a path to approval where we provide this drug to kids with PWS via an expanded access protocol? 
since we know that resourced parents who have access to neurologists who are reading papers about patolescent could possibly get a prescription for patolescent, could we now just as a drug company provided expanded access, track these outcomes, track adverse events, and see if that and and create a path to drug approval with an indication for PWS that way, because right now um, there's you know we get a lot of people sort of patting us on the back and saying how great we've de-risked this for for um, we've de-risked this for Harmony we've uh, de uh, we've de-risked it for the FDA we have shown I mean out of ten kids but it's a rare disease that we're not seeing these crazy adverse events we had one child who didn't tolerate it well but as soon as the child went off it everything was back to normal I mean he had um, he was more anxious on the drug but it's not um, it doesn't appear to be riskier in our population than it is in other populations. I would love to see some some a concrete way our data can be used to create a path to drug approval using patient experience data. I think that's kinder and more respectful of what our patients are experiencing right now. Has there been any discussion with FDA to, to that effect? Um, I can't. Um, we're not invited to that table. Right? That's a, that's a conversation between the drug company and FDA. So um, if, if there has been that conversation, we weren't present for it. So I can't, um, that would be a question for Harmony. And, I, and even if, if, you know, you couldn't even ask the question of FDA because they wouldn't be in a position to share um, that conversation. Um, so that's a question for um, Harmony. The other thing while we have put out a call for our community, more and more pa patients are going on this drug in Europe, right, and um, uh, getting uh, um, patient, um, personal importation, and we continue to track them. But you have to know we're doing this all on a volunteer basis, and so what we're doing is we're tracking these outcomes, we're tracking adverse events uh, to the best of our ability, although there don't appear to be very many, but we're trying to stay on top of it, that's really an undue patient burden. Really, this should be transferred all over to an expanded access protocol where FDA and Harmony are doing the work that we're doing for free. That's what we would love to see happen. Now, I know that's a little bit of a pipe dream, but um, that's sort of my, that's what, I think that someone's got to go first. And I want to push our group to the front of the line, and I think that the rare disease population would benefit from seeing this path explored and successfully exploited. Lara Pullen, president of the Chiam Foundation. Lara, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.